All right, this is Dark Days Radio, episode number 86, and I'm one of your hosts, Mike, and tonight I'm joined by Chris. How's it going, Chris? Hey, uh, yeah, it's good. Hi, Mike. Um, let's think. Uh, lots of stuff's been going on, so uh, oh and lots gosh. of news, so we really need to dive through as much of this as we can. Yep, yep. But, uh, you know, I think before we get into it, we do need to talk about our gaming a little bit, because uh, we've been pretty busy lately. Uh, yeah, um, ooh, what have you been up to, Mike? Well, just last night, I played some Vampire the Eternal Struggle uh, for the first time in a while, and that was that was epic. That was off the hook. Uh, we had like a three-hour long game, which uh, really came down to the wire, and I actually ran out of cards in my deck and was just just holding on by <laughs> by the fingernails. And uh, the guy Excellent. got me. The guy got me, but it was a really epic match. So I really yeah. need to play that. So I've got the um, I watched Matt Dawkins like play through that he did um, a while back. Um, so I get the general gist of some of the rules. Um, I think the the whole what is it like how um yeah how you can like you use um you can hide so how um stealthy the action is mm -hmm. or not yep. that i kind of need to get my head around um but like i've got all those um you know those cards that got brought into the local game shop um where i war game and like i just said i'll take them off your hand and i'll build decks the original decks that were there. So, you know, all the basic clan decks that were done at one point? Yeah, yeah. You, you built a the bunch of the uh, Camarilla edition ones? Yeah. 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 So I've got all those rebuilt. Um, I swapped in one or two cards, which uh, technically, I think some of the cards in those decks are, like, banned because they're, like, ridiculous for some, whatever reason. Yep. So yep. Uh, I swapped in a few things. I have no idea how I'm going to use the Berlin um, release uh, those cards in there but i need to actually just i think i'm just going to play with those basic decks initially and then you know with friends and then work out where i go from there once i've got a feeling for actually the, how the game operates yeah i think that's a good plan and we could talk about vitas a little bit more in the news segment mm. because uh, that's definitely gonna be a big thing but uh chris have you been doing any any guild ball i know you uh, picked up some new stuff for that Okay, so I picked up the Rat Catchers uh, Minor Guild for Guild Ball. So um, they are, I've just been airbrushing them. Um, I've just uh, primed them and done a few base coats with the flesh. They're uh, really cool minis. I would use them for Iron Kingdom's RPG in a snap. They are oh, perfect yeah. to represent um, those type of things. I think that's one of the great things about Guild Ball is the miniatures in general are great rpg miniatures as well it's a shame they don't sell some individual they don't sell them individually anymore because they they shifted over mm. to plastic production the plastics on these compared to so these are a plastic box so compared to what you get in guild ball kickoff which is the introductory two-player set these are far more detailed a lot crisper so it really does show um how you can really get that spin because these are single cat pretty much single cast miniatures i think there's some gluing but they're pre-made for you um mm -hmm. yeah they're they're just really really well cast so um you know if people can do it to that quality good on them uh i don't have but i think steamforge has been at this for a while to get it to this level uh so i've not played much Gilball recently it's mainly been necromunda and oh, we are going to play some more tomorrow uh my jeans are cult is pretty much screwed right at the moment um the next big release for necromunda is gang war 3 
And that brings in rules for the Vansar, which is going to be, they get released this month and they are some sweet, sweet models. So I need to pick those up at a later date and paint them. There are new rules in that book, which I need, which is for how you have the arbitrator take part in games as well. So it means you can control things like monsters and uh, random, uh, you know, just random people in the underhive and stuff. So they're really ramping up the the stuff that but it, it does play really well the tiles to do just playing in the tunnels it's so quick to set up and play when you don't have to worry about 3d terrain um but you know we're going to play with 3d terrain for like the grand finale of the of the of this campaign uh so it's like a battle for the dome so we're going to have a, a race to the highest point on the board there might just be some chaos cultists shooting at people as they go up the sides so uh that'll be hilarious <laughs> Nice. Um, so there's been that, and hold on, I went to a few things. So um, obviously we had gaming the Gothic convention in Sheffield. So that was run by the, uh, I think it's the English department. Um, I got it wrong last time, but I'll get it. it's in the notes somewhere. But um, they had a few games there. So I played, um, uh, was it Lovecraft Letters, which is good fun. And we also played oh, yep. a, a few rounds of Ultimate Werewolf, which is hilarious because I won twice <laughs> twice over, so I'm a perfect liar, it appears. Um, uh, God. Um, so that was good fun. Uh, I also introduced, because uh, when uh, David was over, so he's not been on Network Zero for a while, uh, we will hopefully remedy that, um, showed him uh, how to play Kingdom Death. Uh, that was good fun, so we took out the Gorm. Uh, I've been playing Outlast. I need to play a bit more. So Outlast is a first-person adventure game where you don't have a gun, you don't have any weapons, you just have a camcorder that has a night vision uh, setting. Uh, the batteries run down as you use it, and the only things you can do is hide. So nice, really good. I mean, that is perfect inspiration for how you run ghost hunting, World of Darkness, Chronicles of Darkness, kind of just your... your uh, simple ass mortal um yeah yeah and that's perfect for this episode that we have today because uh, we're gonna be talking about that a little bit yeah yeah we got a good one uh, unfortunately chig is traveling and uh matt has some other commitments but uh we're gonna have a good episode talking a little bit about hunter the vigil hunter the yeah. reckoning maybe even a little bit of piece of the primordial in a second Ooh, here what oh, we, yeah what are we exactly. doing Whoa, uh-oh. <laughs> uh-oh. no it's gonna oh, be good it's gonna be fine we've got, got like uh events that we've um covered uh that coming up as well so we've got a lot of news to cover definitely so i think it's a good time to move on over to that news segment all right chris so let's uh let's cover the big thing that was really just announced this week slash this morning which is that vampire fifth edition pre-orders have been announced and are now available on the Modifius uh, website. So yes. this is pretty cool. Uh, their White Wolf is teaming up with Modifius, which is a really well-known, um, also kind of a new kid on the block, I think, for role-playing games. But they're really great at like getting the product out there into stores, which is exactly what White Wolf wants. So it's a pretty cool partnership. And uh, there is a lot available, isn't there? There's a lot. Yeah, so Modifius has been around for, actually, I think, quite a bit. Because they, they co-run now. They run... Uh, Dragon Meat uh, now, so they're in charge of that hmm. RPG event in London. Okay. I'll, I'll look this up uh, as we talk. They they produce games like uh, I think their own game is Achtung Cthulhu. Their mm-hmm. publishers for things like Tales from the Loop, 
the Conan RPG, uh, Fallout. They, they've got a war game for Fallout. Um, so there's a lot of things they, they covered. So they do also do miniatures, which is exciting. And so, yeah, and I mentioned Tales from the Loop. Uh, James has picked up a copy of that. So at some point, James might run a session for that for us online. Um, but the reason I mentioned Tales from the Loop is because Modiphius, let's point out, Modiphius is distributing this book. They are mm -hmm. publishing and distributing the book because they have a warehouse. Um, that is why Onyx Path Publishing is not distributing or publishing this book because we know Onyx Path Publishing doesn't have a big ass warehouse. Nope. And then guys behind Tells from the Loop, which oh, I can't remember their name. Is it Free Freehold something or other? Blah 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 blah. I don't I, know. They're Swedish. I know that. They're much. Swedish. They they're in charge of helping out like the art and layout, which which makes sense because if you've seen Tells from the Loop, it's a gorgeous gorgeous book. Mm -hmm. They're also the guys behind Coriolis, which is a sci-fi rpg that has kind of a uh, arabian nights feel to it as well again wonderfully uh, produced book clearly there's a lot in this release there are let's let's start with the smallest pieces first there are some custom dice let's be honest i i think essentially you can get by you'll be perfectly fine people will be fine with their um yeah their d10s okay yeah what we think that the uh, custom dice are we haven't had any confirmation yet but it seems like they just replace any failure rolls with a blank side any success yeah. rolls with just like a little onk and then if you get like a roll of a 10 basically like the exploding kind of roll that has yeah, its own symbol as well yeah i think it's i think it's double successes on that one yeah uh, the same with the red hunger dice they're marked in the same way but also they have on a, a result of a one, there is a skull symbol, which I, I mentioned on our chat that the skull symbol comes from the Book of Nod, but I think is also the same skull symbol. They It looks very similar to the Requiem skull symbol. So Yeah, I believe it's the same one. Here's something. If White Wolf is listening and Onyx Path are listening, uh, please, can you just make a version of these dice also for Chronicles of Darkness? Because they're, they're sexy and they work because Chronicles of Darkness has fixed difficulty. Unless you're playing Mummy the Curse, but less said about that, the better. Uh -oh. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 sorry, that's a pet. Hey, I, I, messing with the the fixed difficulty on the dice rolls. That's mm, yeah. That was just like a, a, a step too far in mucking around with the system. So yeah, custom dice, fine. You know, they're not really they're not really that custom. But yeah, you'll be fine with d10s. Then we've got a slip case with artwork. The artwork on the slipcase is the artwork for the Vampire Core book. There is an Anarch source book and a Camarilla source book. There will be at some point a Sabat source book. There is a storyteller screen. Uh, there is a little notebook as well um, that's got the same artwork from the core book. Overall, I really like the artwork. Sam has said as much that she thinks the artwork is very fresh because she, you know, she I got her into roleplay through Requiem. She has no uh, nostalgia for the classic books of of world of darkness so for her this is exciting looking and i think that's something we have to we have to point out is if you don't like the artwork the question you may be having to ask yourself if you're already a fan of world of darkness and vampire the masquerade is maybe the books aren't aimed quite at you you know 
there's uh, this whole push for trans media that these books, I think, am I right? I remember saying that, Mar uh, thinking that Martin and Tobias said that these books also are a jumping point and, and essentially setting Bibles for other pieces of media, whether it's LARP and uh, computer games and so forth. So it really sets the tone. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's important because also pushing itself away from that classic gothic punk look and really capturing like the kind of new gothic fashion elements that you see currently uh that festoon a lot of uh fashion designers fashion designers that we even know that myself and, and sam knows personally i think the point is that it's pushing itself away from that 90s feel and that 90s feel has been mined by underworld it's been mined by shadow hunters uh was it the city of bones whatever bloody modern horror f uh, urban fantasy thing it's been mined to death by vampire diaries who pretty much ripped off everything to do with new orleans um uh, it's mined to death by true blood which you know again is complete ripoff um it's it's making itself distinct enough as it can I think also if you look at the if you consider the cover for the Vampire the Masquerade, the colour scheme, it's kind of got a kind of synthwave feel to it with the colour schemes. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. I really like the uh, new cover artwork for the for the core book itself because it actually is really reminiscent of a lot of artwork that's in the Vampire the Eternal Struggle game. Uh, a lot yeah. of the stuff that like Lawrence Snelly did. And uh, if you're a big fan of like Christopher Shy or yeah. Sam Araya, who we had here on the show. I think that kind of style is going to be one of the things that really is pushed in the uh, the new edition from what we've seen from the artwork. These books are also very coffee table books because, mm -hmm. you know, they, they really make a statement. I mean, also, if we're going to talk about the artwork and stuff, I mean, let's, I mean, the, the, the cover for Masquerade is clearly, um, you know, there's a lot of blood there. Um, and I guess yeah. uh, there's an element of kind of, uh, mystery sexiness to it you know um that's what i get from looking at that cover if you look at the anarch cover uh it pretty much speaks anarch i also quite like the the anarch ank symbol they've come up with yeah i was looking at that too it's a new symbol and uh i like it a lot better than the old one which was just yeah. the sabat and camarilla ones just slapped together yeah so i think it's pretty rad um and then of course uh there is the camaria cover uh, source book and again um i think the thing is is like as you know the roses uh evokes the classic cover of vampire the masquerade uh the face being covered is obviously uh an allusion to the masquerade um also you could almost say there's some symbolism with the choker and the loop because that's it gets into the idea of sadism and masochism and whether it's a d loop or an o loop is is about whether you're a dominant or a submissive so that's kind of kind of elements in there uh we could also talk about the torridor artwork that got um the the torridor spread that got shown off and like some people mm -hmm. were saying like it didn't say torridor to him and uh talking to sam about this it's i think i'm gonna you know, I'm going to might well piss off some people like we don't do that on a regular basis. Um, I think the fun thing about the nice thing about that Torridor artwork is it's not just a woman looking with a come fuck me kind of look to her. She looks dominant. She's looking, looking down upon people 
her it's almost kind of very religious iconography with her hands open uh like you you, you could almost imagine there's some ghouls off screen that are like you know begging at her feet um I think the 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 clothing and everything really has just pushed us away from you know crushed velvet, leather, brocade coats, all that kind of stuff. We're into like as I say this new goth kind of feel to it. And the thing is, it's like maybe she looks impassive, but the thing is, if you think about what Torador are, their 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 classic discipline is um, presence, which is they just create supernatural allure and 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 awe. So she doesn't have to be actual sexy and whatever to to get your attention she exudes it on a on a on a supernatural level i don't know how you feel about it mike i feel pretty good about it i didn't have any issue when i saw it um it's very different than what you would see in say like the old vampire second edition source book with a two-page spread uh it's very minimalist focused on the artwork and then really just two short paragraphs uh describing the clan with no rules either there's no rules on that page from what i could see or the two-page spread so that gives me the hint that this is at least kind of in the front end more like setting and story part of the book not as focused on walls of text and it's going to be a lot more about uh kind of like spreading an experience as you read it and drawing you in in that way and not just not just with the words but also with a lot of the visuals uh which is pretty neat i think the only thing that uh i mean when i first saw these covers this morning i was you know a little thrown off because of course you know, in my grognard ways, I was expecting the green marble cover to be back. And this is far different. Actually, just glancing at them, there is no green anywhere. So that's that's a real big change in a lot of ways. I did really like the minimalist covers that, you know, Vampire the Masquerade had, and really all of the uh, World of Darkness and Chronicles of Darkness books. So that is that is a, a, a big shift. Um, it is important to note that there is this kind of cool deluxe version of the rulebook that they're uh, yeah. doing pre-orders for, which brings back the marble it's white marble in this case but it's uh, red actually, text it's more complicated than that the cover is a faux leather marble mm. cover that's in white with red foil print and it's pretty damn cool looking to be honest yeah. and um it's i don't know i don't it's very interesting white with red it's very it, it really does stand out and make a statement that this is a new this is a new way for vampire this isn't what we we've known and yeah it's it's curious i like it i kind of do want that deluxe rule book i might get it at some point more than likely i'm going to order the um I'm more than likely going to order the Elder Bundle if I can get it. Um, uh, so it's got the the screen that features some artwork that came from the. I think that's artwork we've seen before, actually, from the 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 MMO um, when it yeah, was in it development. Yep. So also some of that artwork is being used in this book as well. Um, you know, I, I I I like it, but I know people are going to hate it, and you know what? People hated Requiem, so. Whatever, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> whatever, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's going to happen. You can't please everyone. So, um, yeah. Awesome. And uh, kind of moving on from there real quick, of course, Vampire, the Eternal Struggle is back in print. A new company has been formed called the Black Chantry, uh, which is run um, at least by both Ben Peel and uh, Hugh Angsing. 
uh, two guys I've met. I've played Vitesse with uh, both of them and Ben quite a bit. He's one of the guys that kind of showed me the ropes back in the day. So uh, we know from a rule standpoint, these guys are, are some of the best and they really know what's going on. So it's definitely uh, exciting to have these uh, very experienced people uh, taking the reins and bringing that card game back. Cool. So yeah, definitely good. They're just down the road from me. They're based in Nottingham. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did see that. Nice. So um, that could be useful. Ooh, what other releases are there? Uh, Night Horrors Enemy Action. So this is a Night Horrors book for Demon the Descent. I've not read it yet. I've been reading Neither have books. I. But I can tell you that it does have some hints about the Contagion Chronicles. Ooh. So that's uh, definitely something interesting. Yeah. Cool. Okay, that's good. Um, what else is out? We've got Beckett's Jihad Diary, of course, came out uh, before V5. Um, so that's pretty much a way of bringing you up to speed with the meta plot in a lot of ways to where things mm-hmm. begin in uh, V5. Um, yep, yep. And then we've got the Pentex Employee Handbook. Again, I can't really speak for much on that one because I'm not a massive uh, uh, Apocalypse fan. Um but I guess that's just kind of the ins and outs of how Pentex operates, right? Yep, pretty much. And then, yep. of course, Chris, there is the Beast Player's Guide. Yes. Uh, Matt has done a very thorough review of it, and <laughs> he's expected. not here. But he left us a page of notes, and oh, you well. flipped through it a little bit. So I did delve can, a little can you kind bit of, into it. We, we promised we would never talk about Beast again no. until something good came out. And clearly, we're about to talk about this. So, so what kind of went on? Like, what, what has caused us to want to talk about Beast Player's Guide? Um, basically, the last two chapters of the book. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's go. Let's go through Matt's notes because I I had a, a look through, and he said he said a few things like there's some there's clearly again a reshifting of some of the lore or how they're presenting it. So, first of all, heroes are apparently are made by beasts and beasts are sort of born the way they are so they've they've reinforced those two things a lot more mm-hmm. um i think that talking to matt that makes beasts a bit more palatable that they're 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 born that way and they're essentially trying to resolve um how they what they are when they have their devouring rather than being getting off of the devouring and, and using it as an excuse to then go off with a little revenge fantasy. So it's a bit more palatable, but of course the book does in, in a lot of places go, you know, beasts are the fucking bad guys. They are not nice people at all. They do whatever they want yep. to try and try and um, try and pass off what they're doing as okay, but they're not. So there's a whole section on why lessons matter and essentially lessons I think the way to think about lessons is a bit like in Promethean, the created second edition, you've got all, you know, you, in second edition, you've got roles, which help, um, and milestones, which help uh, a Promethean build its framework uh, and understand what it is to be human. Lessons are kind of a, uh, the same thing as a way, a framework for a beast to give a reason for why it even exists and does what it does. They're not, the less, like, the fact that someone might learn, a, a person, one of their victims might learn something is actually secondary to the attempt at trying to make, trying to tell the lesson. Um, hmm. So, yeah. I mean, the quote that Matt left here uh, from the Why Lessons Matter sidebar is kind of interesting, uh, which states that, uh, quote, 
lessons matter because you are a monster and this is a fig leaf hiding from the from your last shreds of humanity yeah uh which i think is like just and that's kind of something we've always been talking about with beasts that that's really the angle they should have taken and you know we're, we're a little vindicated that they're doing it here but it's interesting to have this uh concept that maybe, maybe the lessons are more of like a uh sort of a cultural or social thing that have developed mm. amongst the beasts kind of like a uh sort of just like a, a handicap or a crutch with which they they kind of move along and try to deny their own you know beast kind of nature and when beasts get out of line such as those i can't remember the name of them what are the the big guys in the um oh the yeah the, the super bad beasts yeah. when those types show up and don't play by the same rules they really uh kind of rattle the stability of the beast culture and the the families that they have yeah, and I think this we'll, we'll get back to it, but I think some of this relates back to the the to the 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 metaphysics that they've built into the setting about the primordial dream and how how maybe lessons also exist kind of within this kind of gestalt consciousness that exists at the primordial dream. So again, I don't I whether this is all a holdover from ancient the ancient human need to have beasts exist and now beasts are obviously a um something that really isn't required you know as creatures as entities are out of date with where the world is because humans don't need lessons kind of taught in and, and taught to fear in such a brutal manner um anyway so there's some new powers some new nightmares new birthrights new merits some are very interesting like what is it skin deep it basically means like the the primordial dream kind of bursts through your skin and mutates you and brings forth your horror directly um uh ravenous more means you can eat anything and not be harmed by it you know fine um there's some stuff about kinship merit so how they relate to other supernatural creatures uh, there's this other stuff about uh, abascus rites, which again is how beasts can do rituals that tie into the the primordial dream and the the, na- the spiritual nature of beasts. Uh, but there is a, again, Matt points out there's a sidebar which is essentially saying a lot of these rituals involve like doing horrible things, like human sacrifice, and you know players of beasts need to realize that they are playing horrible horrible people um so you know to bear that in mind uh there's actually some stuff about creating communities that uh so about beasts and the type of groups that they can form uh and about cults that can rise up around beasts then where the rules get really interesting is um stuff about the primordial dream so there's a lot of stuff that goes into this where essentially and we can pretty much say if dave brookshaw did a very good job in all, all this section because it, it reads like that is um stop using mage terms was the first thing it was like yeah the, the whole <laughs> language section about you know these are this is how beasts talk about the primordial dream they understand the terms that mages use but they also have their own kind of lingo for it and understanding of it. Um, there's also a place within the primordial dream where you go deep enough, where you get to the dark mother's dream, apparently. And this is an interesting place because apparently it doesn't like horror the, the horrors uh, that the beast has. 
uh, because mm. even even beasts are still too human. So I think there's some interesting elements in there to I need to read a bit more and kind of digest a bit more. But again, could be really interesting for using things like werewolf and mage or, or even changeling to do about, you know, going through the dream realms. Some new inheritances. So this is where your beast, you know, finally comes to some kind of big choice about what they are. So there's the divergence. So in this, the beast physically splits apart from their horror. The horror can feed itself. The beast is no longer beholden to its nature. The horror doesn't really like this, but whatever. And the beast can actually physically restrain the horror if they want to. Erasure. The beast kills their horror, staples and finds some means to replace the horror with an actual human soul. Uh, and yet still retain all the benefits of the horror. And then there's inversion. The beast cripples their horror permanently to turn into some sort of pseudo-beast-hero uh, hybrid who exists to end the Dark Mother and all her works. So essentially we have some kind of kind of happy end games for beast if you want to play towards those. Yeah, it's it's kind of a big divergence in a lot of ways which is why we're talking about it the, kind of the, the the skinny on this book was that there were two developers one developer did the first two chapters and a different developer did the final two and clearly we at darker days found the the latter two to actually be like really interesting very engaging and to add a lot to the chronicles of darkness kind of setting and mythology um so if what we mentioned interests you um you know, uh, you you can check this book out, and uh, we would we would encourage those final two chapters. They're pretty neat. I mean, if they could ever fold in half the stuff, those two chapters fully into uh, the core game, and when they do a new edition of the core game, which isn't going to be for for a while, but um, yeah. uh, it will be. I I can see it being a lot better. Um, a game that would be a lot more palatable and has have a lot more direction. Um, yeah, that's all I can really say on it. I would say pick up this book if you you, know, you played Beast, you've got copy, and you want to try and play it, and you want to kind of actually make it a bit more um, less horrible, or uh, like I say, more direction to it. Anyway, yeah. moving on, what else have we got to say? Uh, we've got some news, events and stuff. So yeah, Game in the Gothic convention was really, really interesting. There were some uh, interesting talks, uh, people talking about how Gothic turns up within gaming culture. Whether it's Pokemon, and Pokemon has ghost-type creatures and locations in the Pokemon world mm -hmm. which have very Gothic elements, to Dark Souls, obviously, to looking at some more modern games uh i think me, me and james were talking about on net on the last network zero about and the gothic elements of uh the warhammer world as they appear within mordheim i think there were some things that actually the person doing it could have brought up uh, more to the fore because he was saying like oh look yeah the, the 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 scenery the architecture has skulls in it and such gothic you know themes and yeah. mood that's kind of iconic to the entire warhammer world it's not just mordheim even though mordheim is this kind of post-apocalyptic setting it is a small piece of a grander setting like you know skulls are pretty much there because games workshop put skulls on everything so it's it's clearly a you know there, there's this um it's clear that gothic influences within gaming culture 
is pervasive. Yeah, and there are different different types of games draw uh, draw draw forth those themes in different ways depending upon what the gameplay style you're going for. If I was going to discuss the gothic nature of more time i think i would really focus on the weird stone i know this is a tangent but i'm just kind of thinking <laughs> yeah. about this right now yeah because it has it has all these addictive qualities and you know the power that uh, people can get through it from it you know yes. for uh for magic and wizardry but also the has all the dangers you know the kind of radioactive almost horrible mutations and changes to your body i think that's what i would really focus on if i was doing more time yeah i and i'm gonna say this because uh, um you know i've I've uh, put the feelers out there, and uh, the guys at Cubicle Seven are—I've uh, invited to see if they want to come on the show, and they're well up for it. Before, if we can get that done before UK Games Expo, that'll be great. If it's after, fine. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to bug them to do a more time source book for Warhammer Fantasy oh, Roleplay Four K because it. I will just be so happy for that. Uh, I'd be also equally happy to see the source books for. Um, the Age of Sigmar setting, because I think the, uh, what's it called? Heldenhammer? There's a city that kind of has that kind of... Um, Hammerhall. Hammerhall. Hammerhall yeah. seems to have that kind of, some of that element, but with the more um, high epic fantasy um, elements that you have now in that setting. So yeah, Gaming, Gaming the Gothic was good. Hopefully they'll do it next year. Other events. So we're not... So I'm now not running games at the International Gothic Association because they are jammed packed with speakers. There is no place on the timetable for that. So we're going to run games at Halloween in the City in Manchester at Halloween uh, in October, obviously. So that's the plan for doing a live stream game of Chronicles of Darkness gives me a lot more time to think maybe I might do a Promethean one. Maybe Ooh, it is 200th anniversary awesome. of Frankenstein. And yep. Promethean, as I said, we, we did that on Network Zero recently. I'm much more into Promethean. It looks a lot easier to get your head around. Disquiet is not as bad. Um, and of course, with V5 being out by that point, I can easily do a V5 game-like demo. So hopefully if we can get things sorted out and the right people to talk, blah, 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 we might get a little bit more stuff going on at um, at Halloween in the city because I think it'd be a, a cool uh, event. Um, Horicon UK is like two weeks away for me. So uh, we've got space there. We'll have a little de- uh, table if people want to say hi when we're sat down just you know editing photos and stuff. And hopefully I can get a, uh, a few snippets off people like jeffrey coombs and uh david warner uh for example so that's event wise is there anything else event wise coming up i said uk games expo uh, i've got my slots for chronicles of darkness and vampire fifth edition playtest demo yep. i am squeezing trying trying uh, basically i've been asking please white wolf give me a new demo kit for uk games expo um because that'd be great what with fifth edition you know on pre-order uh, we'll see what happens yep. on that front. Yeah, and I think the only other event we have is Chig at Gen Con because he recently got his press pass and Ooh. everything. So he'll be there uh, talking to people, getting the uh, skinny on the situation, and uh, hopefully getting us a couple interviews or something. Cool. And then the other cool stuff is that... So I went over to Beast of War again, did some more Kingdom Death videos. Uh, yeah, they're fun. 
Um, <laughs> a lot happened in those playthroughs. Mm. It, it, yeah, it was painful uh, for the uh, settlement in places. But Beast of War have... If, you, if you're coming to listen to this episode, I hope it's because also you, you may have been directed from the guys over there. Um, because uh, we're running a competition, aren't we, Mike? Yes, we are, uh, with Jackalope LARP Productions. Yes. So, if you listen to the last, not the last episode, not the episode before, a few episodes back, the Jackalope LARP event is a event taking place in Texas, in Austin. Yep. That is a, uh, it is a live action event in the vein of Enlightenment in Blood and End of the Line. More similar to End of the Line. It is a sabbat themed LARP event. It will be taking place at a nightclub. It is splatterpunk. There'll be lots and lots of lashings and lashings of fake blood and gore. This is not for the faint-hearted. Tickets are still available, and we are giving away a ticket to this event. That means, first of all, this is only a ticket to this event. You must get there yourself. You must get your own lodging and food. This ticket can be claimed online and is worth $189. It is a single standard admission ticket. It is not redeemable or refundable, but it can be transferred to another person. So obviously, if you win it and something goes down and you've got a friend that you think can go in in your stead, you know, you can hand it on, which is good. Uh, You must be 18 years or older to play because there will be gore there will be themes of an adult nature mm-hmm. um and you must be compliant with all of jackalope live action Studios safety and event policies basically charles manson does not get a ticket um <laughs> <laughs> so um yes so this competition will be running for a month i think is best mike so we can announce on the next you're mostly wondering how do you get a ticket what is the competition uh, Mike, what is the competition? Well, the competition is to uh, go to the trailer that was created for World of Darkness Berlin, and you just need to find the photo, scene, or timestamp where Chris and I show up. So it should be pretty easy. And, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, feel free to just guess. That's cool, too. And uh, we'll figure out the winners as uh, as needed. If no one gets it, it will go straight to a lottery. So, it, you know, if you do well, great. If you don't, maybe not everyone else gets it. So there's a bit of skill, but there's still a bit of chance. Yep, definitely. And we're going to embed the video in the show notes for this episode. So just go to darkerdasjays.org and check it out. Or it's also a trailer's on YouTube, so it's yeah. pretty easy to find as well. So we've got something else to announce from Jackalopes. They've they've announced something else that's really awesome. <laughs> yeah, just to round out the uh, news segment right here, we did find out that uh, Jackalopes... Uh, now has the rights to do Cyberpunk 2020 live-action role-playing events just in time for the year 2020. I'm psyched. I really want to go to this. <laughs> I want to go to this. <laughs> dressing up as a cyberpunk and, uh, you know, just fighting for creds and, uh, you know, sticking it to the man seems like a lot of fun. And definitely a lot of cool neon. Oh, man. It'll be... Uh, I'm, I'm already interested where will they hold it because, you know, I, I understand... You know, this is me. If you're listening, guys from Jack Webbs, this is me saying the US, fine, I get it. There's mostly certain cities that fit that kind of cyberpunk kind of feel. 
likewise though i think certain european cities can also do it really well because they've got that kind of brutalist architecture uh like again parts of parts of berlin would be so pretty sweet for this game and also maybe given given cyberpunk's kind of uh how can i say global feel because you know people from all different parts you want to you want to feel like you're you're in either Blade Runner or in Neuromancer or something like that. Mm-hmm. You want to feel like you're in the city with lots of people from different cultures. And maybe Berlin's good because it's you can get all the European element and beyond. I know it, it's always a difficult choice because you're going to have to get there somehow and it's going to be harder for some people than others. But Or maybe do multiple events. I don't know. Um, <laughs> multiple events with simulcast so we can talk across the globe to one another. Oh, actually, that'd be shit hot. Actually, yeah, two two events, it, it would be. same time, messaging back and forth, plot. Hmm. Curious. Oh, could be. Oh, that is. Anyway. Anyway. Okay. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm totally up for it. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds cool. Anyway, that's it for the news. Let's get to the main show. Forty minutes in. <laughs> Classic world of dark. Let's talk a little bit about Hunter the Reckoning. We should talk about it. And uh, one of the interesting things about Hunter is that it really continues a lot of the plot threads that uh, Wraith kind of let hanging loose uh, since it sort of replaced it in the game line for the World of Darkness. One thing that we can talk about is the Risen because we've had a lot of ideas about these uh, entities over the years, uh, talking about how they fit in with um, the... One World of Darkness, uh, sort of undead mythology, how they might relate to vampires, kindred of the East, and that sort of thing. So I think this would be a good thing to, uh, you know, just kind of explore a little bit further. We we talked about about the Risen a bit at um, World of Darkness Berlin, didn't we? So I'm yeah, interested definitely. In, in knowing more because I know less about Hunter the Reckoning. So actually, in that case, I should always just do like a little primer on what Hunter the Reckoning is. So Hunter the Reckoning is a uh, a Another role-playing game. It has its own core book, uh, which it only had one edition of back in uh, 1999. So it's almost 20 years old now. And it's about playing really just like regular blue-collar human beings that are suddenly thrust into the supernatural world as they're imbued with these um, basically supernatural powers from something called the messengers or the heralds, some sort of greater higher force. And this allows them to see that uh, monsters exist in the real world. And it's kind of from there that you have to figure out how the player character is going to interact with the, with the world of darkness itself. And one of the most common foes that they encounter are, of course, these Risen or zombies. Now, Risen itself was originally introduced in Wraith the Oblivion uh, as an answer to the classic 1994 film, The Crow. And we're not going to talk about the Wraith incarnation too much because we don't have time for that. And apparently the Midnight Express episode being released this weekend is on the Risen. So you can just go check that out. We'll put a link in the show notes. But as a quick refresher, in Wraith, they're usually a pretty rare occurrence. Uh, They're a Wraith from one of the guilds that has returned to their mortal body. They've left the Shadowlands and now they walk the Skinlands once more by using Arkanoi and returning to their their original uh, body. Hmm. Only a few doesn't exist, but they actually retain some use of their Arkanoi, their ghostly powers, and they can even learn a few vampiric disciplines, specifically potent, celerity, fortitude, and obfuscate. But these are 
powered by pathos, which is the kind of fuel stat of the wraiths in this game, but they need to be instructed by kindred to learn these disciplines. So that's very interesting. Uh, it kind of shows that there's some relation between the kindred, you know, the undead vampire, and these revenants that have come back to uh, the living world. And Risen are a really big deal in Wraith because uh, they can interact with the real world uh, with a lot more proficiency than normal ghosts who have a lot of challenges. They need very high-level Arkanoi to be able to do anything, any kind of interaction with the Skinlands. And they make crossover games a lot easier for uh, for these Wraith-Risen characters uh, since they can actually interact with all the other supernatural creatures. So that's pretty fun. And... What's really neat is that after Wraith ended, after it had its End of Empires source book and the Sixth Great Maelstrom occurred, the Risen persisted in the World of Darkness. And uh, they became, as I mentioned, one of the most common encounters for the imbued of Hunt of the Reckoning. But there's actually a lot of weird inconsistencies. They don't, they don't exactly match up. First off, there's a lot more of them. And they've kind of been subdivided into three types. There's the, the Hidden, the Walkers, and the Shamblers. The Shamblers are kind of the slow-moving, rigid-limbed pack zombies that you might know from movies like uh, Night of the Living Dead. And these are a lot different from the Risen, who really just passed for human. They passed as mortal. And and the Shamblers are not that. They, they have this kind of classic zombie feel uh, from cinema, not from real zombie mythology. And they're a lot more akin to what you might see from like mid-level necromancy in Vampire the Masquerade. The walkers I mentioned are kind of like this somewhat uh, undead uh, form, which looks human for the most part, but under close inspection, you can see that they're wounded or beginning to decay. And in fact, they do decay over time, so they have like a limited timer with which they can exist. And of course, they're a lot more uh, agile than shamblers. They have the full range of motion and movement. Um and these undead, it mentions in the uh, Hunter Core book, usually return for a specific task before returning to the grave. And then finally, there's the Hidden, which are a much more sophisticated, uh, Risen-like undead. They're very similar in a lot of ways. They look almost entirely human to the mortal eye. You know, they can hold jobs, they can easily interact with people, and uh, generally get on with their lives, except they have this burning passion to tackle these unfulfilled tasks and the like. Hmm. Now, the reason why these get interesting is that uh, the in-character text in the Hunter the Reckoning source book, uh, the, uh, the core book itself, hints that these hidden, these ones that are most like the Risen, are very static in nature. It's very difficult for them to learn new things, new tasks, new skills. And uh, this is a lot different than what we saw in the, uh, the Risen source book for Wraith. But it's also intriguingly similar to Vampire the Masquerade, where the vampires are constantly uh, discussed as being very static creatures, especially as they become like elders and Methuselahs and the like. So that's kind of an interesting comparison, coincidence, I'm not sure. What that to me suggests, and I mean, this goes back to what you know, your, your slide um, that you did for World of Darkness Berlin uh, for the talk there. The kindred via the embrace die but the curse holds them in a in that kind of state between living and death and it, right, it, right. it, it literally binds them binds their soul to their dead body and that's different to the risen 
who obviously have come from you know our ghosts kind of revenant style within a dead body and yet they both still are able like because again like they look almost human so the hidden can regenerate then also kind of like vampires i imagine or they've got they can use their yep. they can use their their uh plasm is it plasm or to uh pathos pa- to restore yeah. the plasm yeah, yeah. of their wraithly entities so and then that yeah. compares interestingly to of course mummy uh, again, because mummies within the within um, classic world of darkness are again people that have died, and again their soul is tied to uh, uh, their body that is in a, a state of undeath. And then, of mm-hmm. course, you've got the the kaijin, which are similar to to the risen. Um, the only difference is that their soul has somehow been split into the uh, what is it, the po and the, the yeah, the yin yang yeah. sort of uh, so dichotomy. It, yep. It's yeah, I really, I really, really wish um, the guys uh, at White Wolf would really kind of like capitalize on on this linkage because I, I think you know the risen would be in with Gehenna going on uh, in. In the world of darkness currently like it's this it's an ongoing process and so obviously the fallout from wraith you know risen would actually be really fun characters to have within a v5 game because they're kind of for all it for uh, mm, for most yeah. for most purposes they operate the same way and even the hung you could do, mostly do something fun with the hunger dice that actually relates to their to their passions right yeah, absolutely. Um, like their passions boil over, and they have to they they fall to um, certain uh, things, and and how do hidden then uh, you know so how do they they replenish their their stores of of energy? You know, vampires feed to get vitae. So what are the hidden doing, and what are shamblers doing? What are walkers doing? Right. So for all of these these undead and also the Risen of Wraith themselves, they gain pathos from the emotions of mortals around them. And uh, this, you know, in Wraith, you know, that depends on certain, um, you kind of, as you're making your character, you pick particular passions uh, that they care about, such as like love, hatred, uh, things like that. It's a bit more vague uh, because these aren't really player characters in, in Hunter. They're more... Um, antagonists but the kind of rule of thumb is that when they encounter certain very powerful emotions they will gain pathos now the interesting thing um which i didn't really put into the uh, the show notes here is that if they encounter a lot of negative emotions if they're in like tense gang warfare or uh they encounter you know a, a shattering um divorce or something like that that can cause them to gain pathos but also can cause a personality kind of flip uh which is if you're familiar with wraith uh it's the shadow taking over and the uh kind of temporary control Mm. of a uh the the kind of self-destructive dark side of that wraith or risen so that's how they replenish their their powers so they're emotion vampires which which is the comparison i was trying to get at so they're still vampires of a sort and i think that's interesting what with the with v5 going down the you are what you eat uh route 
you know that if mm. you feed on certain people you gain certain mechanical benefits because of either they're a drug user or they're very happy and calm or or um you know you feed off a psychic for instance or something like that so i think there's a lot of room there for bringing the risen to the forefront of world of darkness now and I think a really interesting thing we we're talking about Vampire 5th Edition is that we've heard that vampires no longer have souls, which is uh, makes them really a lot different now than the Risen, because this is a, a spirit that has returned to its body to to become that kind of like revenant entity. So, yeah, these, these comparisons I'm drawing kind of are assuming that vampires still have souls, uh, as they did in, in previous editions of Vampire. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So there's a lot of unknowns moving forward, but still, these are kind of interesting things to think about and explore in your games. So yeah, real quick. Um, so beyond the the Hunter Core book, there's two other books that deal with these these. I guess we're probably calling them zombies when I'm talking about Hunter and the Risen when I'm talking about Wraith. But zombies are exploring two other books, which are the Hunter Storyteller's Companion, which is that little like 64 page book that came with the uh, the uh, storyteller screen and then also hunter the walking dead the storyteller's companion basically has new rules that supersede the uh, core rule book talking about uh, the different tricks that zombies and ghosts can have and how they're powered by pathos um, the only really interesting thing amongst all those mechanics is that pretty much all zombies get these three tricks which are called power speed and endurance and the mechanics of those are exactly the same as Potence, Celerity, and Fortitude, the disciplines from Vampire the Masquerade. So they kind of had those carry over. And it's also really funny. I don't know if they really thought about what they were doing when they were writing this, mm. because they gave these shambling, slow-moving zombies celerity. And they can just do this like really speedy flurry of actions for a couple turns, which is uh, maybe not what was intended, but could really shock your players as well. Mm. Uh, then we get to uh, Hunter the Walking Dead, which is the first of the Hunter enemy book series, which are really fun source books. They usually have about six chapters of kind of in-character fiction, and then a really big rules uh, chapter at the end for storytellers and that sort of thing. Back in the day, these weren't really like the best value because you were just buying a lot of fiction and that sort of thing. But it was still really interesting to see how the Hunter characters kind of progressed and uh, explored the world. And um, it's also really good at showing storytellers and players the kind of ignorance that uh, these imbued have and how they don't understand things and these hunter books as well uh, the enemy books are really neat because they give a lot of like optional rules powers and builds that uh, do not match up with the powers of say ghosts or vampires in the main game lines so you can kind of trick your players and shock them with a lot of abilities that they weren't expecting so that's kind of the value of them uh, right there. Yeah, this one, it's uh, it's interesting because it gives you a lot of ideas for how the Risen and Wraith might survive or even thrive in the Skinlands after the uh, sixth Great Maelstrom has occurred. So what's going on is that when people die and they go to the, uh, the, the Deadlands, Shadowlands of Wraith, uh, most of them are just torn apart immediately because there's this raging storm, which uh, their incorporeal essence can no longer survive in. But many of them are able to stay in the skinlands, and they kind of just latch on to these fetters or anchors, as they're called in this book. And once they're, if they're close to them and those are well cared for, these ghosts and or 
zombies are able to survive. Mm. So for the ghosts, uh, basically they have to stay within 100 yards of their fetter or anchor. And if they get too far away, they'll start taking lethal damage and they'll be destroyed. So this is why so many ghosts are bound to very particular locations or items. The zombies, however, don't seem to have the same issue because one of their anchors is their body. It's their corpse that they're walking around in. So they're able to be mobile in that way. But this brings up a lot of really interesting possibilities because if a zombie is destroyed, they might be able to possess another body or skin ride in uh, in, in a mortal until such time as they can get back to their actual anchor or a secondary anchor that they have, which can make kind of this cool recurring antagonist. Or in the case of if you're actually like playing with these Risen in a post six maelstrom wraith game uh set in the real world this kind of gives you some abilities and ideas for how you might be able to survive very uh lethal encounters that sort of thing right okay so yeah yeah it's pretty neat the book goes on to talk about uh some other ghost adjacent mortals for example it talks about mediums which are just mortals who can sense and retroact with the dead so they are slightly in tune with the kind of psychic powers and numina and it's interesting that the book notes that the hunters, the imbued, perceive them as wrong in the site because they have these sort of supernatural powers. Hmm. The book also discusses something which is really interesting, and I think this is where a lot of the cool ideas for the Risen take off, which is ghost cults. So these are mortal cults worshipping a ghost, zombie, or Risen. The interesting thing is that they can also be granted the tricks, the kind of powers from these ghosts or Risen. And uh, they can be given pathos from their ghostly patrons that they can empower these abilities. And I think this is really interesting. It gives the Risen a new method to harness allies and retainers uh, by granting them these sorts of benefits and building up this, you know, localized cult personality. And it kind of gives them this, like, emotional herd that they can use to feed and get pathos while also dispensing it to them. Which, you know, sounds a lot like Vampire, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. a, a lot like Vampire. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But the reason why this gets a little bit different is that these morals can assist them in completing their tasks, those duties that they need to fulfill so that they can finally rest and be at peace. And they can also help out with protecting their anchors. Or in some cases, maybe the mortals in the ghost cult can become their anchors. Of course, the types of people that are going to be joining a ghost cult are probably pretty nuts. You know, that's not really going to be the most stable person in a lot of situations so this can uh bring a lot of dynamics into any risen game uh where you want to use this sort of a uh kind of a power base for them which is pretty neat hmm. the other weird thing is that these mortal cultists with pathos once they get these like powers granted by the ghostly patron do not show up as wrong in the second sight for the imbued hunters which uh is really strange to me because every single other mortal that uh like if they become ghouled if they have vampire blood in them they show up in the site uh if they're a hedge wizard they show up in the site i believe even kinfolk show up in the site if they have any gnosis or any any gifts in the uh, werewolf game so that's uh i'd retcon that, just, that. <laughs> that seems yeah i'm not side. sure it, it seems really strange but they like two pages before specifically say that the mediums do show up in the site. So I'm pretty sure they knew what they were doing when they wrote that. I just don't understand why. Mm. It does make them much more challenging if you use them as an antagonist in the uh, the Hunt of the Reckoning game, though, since they can't be seen. Hmm. Okay. So 
that's a quick summary of what happened with Arisen in Hunter the Reckoning. The you know the the comparison throughout to to uh, vampires um, is like I said it's it's really you know lots of opportunity to have have antagonists in a vampire game who are you know you thought you, you think is a vampire it may act like a vampire in some ways but actually when you start you know, really properly tackling them you know all the other stuff comes out it's a bit like in chronicles of darkness where you've got uh you know the immortals book which has other types of immortal or or um mm, yep. the night horrors book with all the other other types of vampires it just adds that extra element of you know what the hell like you know like mystery element when you know it can become a bit kind of a bit boring when you go oh yeah it's uh it's clearly uh just a sabbat van you know a sabbat doing whatever you know murdering people but if it's actually one of the risen who's performing the tasks that they didn't have time to finish or getting revenge on the people that murdered them you know you can really go to town with that and um but equally yeah they're, they're cool kind of characters to drop into a vampire chronicle uh because they're an interesting ally that doesn't need to go to sleep when there's daylight up. Mm-hmm. Yep. As for the the Walking Dead, the actual like you know the the shambling ones and the walkers, is there anything in there that relates to how shamblers? If it's like because that's they're the undead which is animated by a ghost. So I guess does it does it go into the difference between like those and say our classic you know zombies which are propagated by some sort of disease or virus uh not really uh going over those those two books in the core book it doesn't really it doesn't give you any firm answers as to why these three different types exist um they're really you know in a lot of ways it's kind of like a power level option the shamblers are very weak the hidden are very strong um i think this is kind of me uh this is pure conjecture right here but uh what probably happens is that the hidden are ones that have multiple fetters and are able to um they have a very strong drive strong passion to return to life because they have multiple tasks to fulfill and that's why they typically are the most powerful have the most you know pathos running through them Mm. and are able to survive the longest the shambler uh, yeah, yeah the shambler who's the zombie uh type at the very bottom they probably don't have any fetters. They are more just like a spirit or group of spirits because they apparently show up in packs for some reason that just kind of get um, shoved back into their bodies. They get kicked out of the storm of the six maelstrom and they go back to the closest anchor they have, which is their own previous bodies. They're probably, you know, freshly buried, that sort of thing. And they just kind of happen to uh, return for a, uh, a very short period. Because they feed off of pathos, and their bodies are decomposing and they need to heal somehow and they use pathos to heal that's why they go out and start causing a lot of destruction harassing people um and generally causing a bad situation uh because the they just need to get those those emotions that feeding and the easiest way to do that is by by shocking or attacking people and um yeah and the reason why they don't always show up as you know oh my gosh, a zombie invasion in our city is because there's just a couple of them and they probably get uh, hit by a car or something or shot by a police officer and it's just marked up as another, you know, 
pack of drug addicts or something. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the uh, the mortal media explanation for what's going on. Okay, cool. Yeah, I, I, there's not much more to add. I, you know, like I said, I'm just keen. To, it'd be cool to see them turn up in uh, in, in a new product uh, post V5. Um, and of course, there's the big question uh, that that's on top of all this is how will this all fit into World of Darkness Ghost Hunters? So, what do we know about that book? That book, I believe, is a a book that fits in with the the 20th anniversary line of Wraith. Is that right? Uh, no, I think it's just a regular World of Darkness book, which is kind of um, strange. I I don't think we really have any uh, details about it. We just know that it's a uh a ongoing project which is going to be coming out soon but no no real details at the moment um it's very strange you know i was looking through at the different kind of uh source books that have existed for the interaction between wraiths and mortals we of course have a lot of hunter books but for wraith there was uh mediums speakers with the dead which you know covers the aforementioned mediums and some of their numina and, and special powers some of the small organizations and there was also the uh, quick and the dead source book for a year of the hunter and that one mostly focuses on like these really big conspiracies. You know, if we're talking about Hunter the Vigil, they're conspiracy level, um, with like headquarters, large funds, that sort of thing. And there's no real source book that covers like small operations, you know, casual ghost hunters, people that kind of have an inkling about the truth um, and how they might interact. So that is definitely something that uh, is a blank that could be filled in for the uh, the classic world of darkness. So I'm pretty yeah. excited to see what goes on with the that. The description on the Onyx Path Publishing website is this world of darkness ghost hunters. This book covers a variety of investigators of the supernatural uh, in the world of darkness. Chapters cover types of investigations, ghost hunting equipment and gear as well as methods of research and other resources for investigators. New merits representing ghost hunting equipment connections will also be included i mean it kind of reads like the the world of darkness and i would say this is mostly because it says it's going to be pdf print on demand so it's going to fit in with the the, i think this surely must fit in with the 20th anniversary and it's developed by matt mcelroy is it's got to fit in with with the 20th anniversary and you know essentially it's kind of filling that hole of mortals in world of darkness quite neatly without it being i don't know world of darkness mafia hmm. and you know by doing that i think it finally kind of squares the circle which you know chronicles of darkness does out of the box which is you just want some normal humans that happen to interact with ghosts or or investigate cryptids or or other weirdness yeah i'm keen to see that book um and hear more about it um yeah. Okay. I think that that sums up Risen and why they're they're pretty pretty cool, and you should use them in your games. Yep. So I guess it's now time for the secret frequency. It's under the stairs. <laughs> so for this wonderful episode, we have a secret frequency from. Yorkshire in the UK, which is where I currently nope. live. So okay. this regards a, uh, a poltergeist activity in a house uh, on 30 East Drive. It's unusual to find uh, a house uh, which lists that that isn't several hundred years old in the UK. 
uh, and this is one such house. It's interesting because it's captivated the UK paranormal community for many decades. It's even appeared on such things as Most Haunted, which is a fairly well-known UK paranormal research pro well, investigation show, much similar to Ghost Adventures and uh, all those kind of um, shows. The how uh, the most haunted is actually is prevented by uh, presented by Yvette Fielding, who uh, described this location as the most terrifying place she's ever visited, citing never-ending paranormal activity in this house and the violence and the spirit that dwells there as excessive even for a poltergeist. Poltergeist activity has been been uh, reported here for over 40 years. And the Pritchard family, who occupied the house during the first reports of paranormal activity, initially tried to ignore what was going on. However, the malevolent spirit refused to be uh, to be denoted to the background, and the parents were forced to seek help when it began to target the young children. One of the most disturbing uh, attacks that this poltergeist did was to drag a 12-year-old girl up the stairs of the home by the throat before attempting to strangle her with an electrical wire. Exorcisms have been uh, attempted and failed, and paranormal activity persists, with the neighbours reporting screams and demonic voices, even when the house is uninhabited. It's interesting because this is similar to, and it, it's reminiscent to, the Enfield poltergeist haunting. The Enfield poltergeist haunting, which is also uh, a case of paranormal activity in a house that took place in the 70s in the place in in the town of council in a council house again a modern house in Brimsdown Enfield in England which also happens to be in Yorkshire so I don't know what that says about this area of um, of England and of course the Enfield poltergeist haunting is very famous because it attracted uh, investigators and obviously is forms the basis for the the film The Conjuring 2. So it's curious to have modern houses, I guess, so um, so uh, attack you know, that they have poltergeist activity that's so strong attached to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, are we ready to uh, to dive right we into We can dive this into this one. I might pick another one off here. Yeah. There's a there's a few others on the on the page. I'll grab this on, but let's um let's go into this one yeah. first. Okay, so I mean, I was just reading a whole lot about ghosts in the uh, Hunter the Reckonings. That's the first thing that uh, kind of jumps to mind here. And one of the cool things about this is that you know the the ghosts now in in Hunter at this point, you know, after the sixth great maelstrom, are much more. Uh, a lot of them, a lot of them are the more drone types. They don't, uh, they don't have the same level of free thought. So in a lot of ways, they, their damage that they're doing can't be helped. They're just enraged, they're confused, and they're lashing out, which can explain why a lot of these, uh, these events are occurring. So that's that's one possible reason. Another reason, you know, despite this being a new house, we have to kind of look at the uh, the surrounding area. Uh, the house itself despite being new construction, could really be a red herring for your investigators, hunters, or whomever uh, is interacting with this in your World of Darkness game. And it could be that there's an old factory, an old mill right next door, and that's where a lot of the uh, the ghosts are coming from or previously inhabited. Um, kind of taking that a, a step further, 
there might be some sort of explanation for why the ghosts aren't in that old Miller factory. Perhaps there was a ritual done years ago, or an exorcism by the local old priest. Um, and because of that, these poltergeists have spread to other locations nearby, but are still within a close proximity to their existing fetter, which is, of course, the factory, which then brings up the challenge. What are we going to do? Like, arson the factory? Are we just going to destroy it? And that can bring a lot of uh, challenges for a, a hunter game of some sort. Hmm. I think the other thing is, um, given that it's a modern house, and if you really wanted to, you know, throw a bit of a curveball with this, is it doesn't, the poltergeist activity is not a ghost. It could be a spirit of some form. So, you you look at the type of spirits that you can have from both versions of werewolf and you could go down that route and so again the idea that exorcisms are failing all the typical things you would do to get rid of a ghost aren't working well that's because it's not that type of spirit and it it's operating on on a, a different set of rules that's that's would be the the route i would go with it um it's you could potentially go down the route that actually the thing that's terrorizing the house and the reason it's fixation maybe on children is it could be one of the true fae in Changeling the Lost. Oh, yeah. And that would be quite terrifying, yeah. really. Um, yeah, if there's a trod right next to your house. Yeah. Ooh, ooh that's um, dangerous. Yeah, that's, that's where I would go with that one. Um, I'm just looking through for some other interesting places that are haunted around um, sure. Yorkshire. Well, another idea that I just had is that um, could a could a Promethean's disquiet and and kind of oh, wasteland yeah. effect on the nearby area actually cause poltergeist-like activities? It could actually affect the spirit world itself, which would you that's know, actually the uh, was it the Uglan Uglan. Um, oh, of course, yes, their, yes. Their, yeah, their wasteland right. effect obviously influences ghosts and spirits because they are they are the Prometheans whose humor is ectoplasm, and so yes, their 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 um, wasteland effect would actually do this. So yeah, this house could just be set at the very center of a uh, Promethean wasteland, and the only way that it's the event is going the the haunting there is ever going to end is if a, a firestorm uh, is triggered to cleanse the area, which will undoubtedly mostly mean the destruction of the house itself. Another local legend we'll go into is the Headless Knight that haunts Scarborough Island. So Scarborough is on the coast, on the the east of uh, east of England, the north of England and, and fairly close to Whitby. And the this ghost is of Piers uh, Gaveston, uh, the son of of Gascon Knight, uh, of a Gascon Knight, sorry, and is said to haunt the, the castle after the defences failed to keep him safe in 1312. Uh, although he was uh, beheaded in Warwickshire, his headless ghost has been spotted on the slopes and battlements of this castle, followed by his head, which pulls itself along the ground by its teeth. Ooh. He's also likely to be seen at the Barbican uh, Gate by the East Wall, uh, which is close to an Ang Anglo-Saxon chapel, as if his tormented soul is looking for some religious uh, consolation. Others have seen him peering out, peering out windows, filled uh, his eyes filled with melancholy as he stares into the depths of the North Sea. Uh, a legend has, has it that his spirit has attempted to lure people off the cliffs to their deaths. 
Yeah, I mean, the thing is, we, there are so many, so many battles that have taken place across uh, the, the whole of the United Kingdom, you know, the British Isles, that ghosts are pretty commonplace in the world of darkness or for Chronicles of Darkness, and uh, running a, a, a basic standard mortals game is really just a question of of doing a little bit of research and you know you can use these these tales in as many ways as possible i mean for for um north america it's quite different comparatively because you've mostly got the strange you've got the element of strangeness that you can you can get from things that predated the colonies because there's various ancient cultures related to, to Native Americans, like they're still discovering things they think they're like, you know, almost like small city-states in places which over time disappeared due to whatever famine disease or, or, or uh, environmental change. But then you also have like I, I can't even count how many what, I can't even think off the top of my head like what the death toll of the Civil War is and yet that's, and that's pretty much part and parcel of the, the haunted you know, quite a lot of the ghost stories that that um, that are across the entire entirety of North America. Yeah, definitely. Um, just for a little quick little history, um, a lot of like spiritualism and ghost stories appeared in the United States uh, following the Civil War because there were just so many like wounds that needed to be healed and people looking for any kind of uh, way to communicate with those that they lost. That uh, a lot of like mediums popped up and uh, you know armchair psychics and that sort of thing so the only thing i'm going to say about uh, this secret frequency is that i'm flipping through the risen source book right now and there's nothing that says that a risen can't exist with its head chopped off so i'm just going to point that out <laughs> yeah so yeah that's that's the uh, secret frequency i think the the main point is there are some uh, there's something if you want to do i think this one my last thing on this is if you want to do haunted stories about hauntings and paranormal activity like that and you're going to set them within say the UK or in parts of Europe sometimes the most disconcerting thing you can do with with these stories is don't set them in in like some old manor house don't set them in some castle or or some old uh, Victorian building sometimes the most weird thing is the thing that can really reinforce the weirdness and sheer kind of creepiness element of it is it all happens within you know some 1970s concrete bloody apartment building uh there's something really unsettling about i feel about that kind of horror you kind of see that sometimes in kind of in in j-horror as well um oh yeah like, j-horror is really into that within... right i think that covers the secret frequency then great and let's move on over to chronicles of darkness Chronicles of Darkness. So, Chris, we've actually got a uh, Hunter the Vigil rapid-fire recording from years ago, which we have not yet used. And uh, the cool thing is that it's actually from uh, Alex Green, one of the writers of the Hunter the Vigil source book, core book, I should say. So I'm excited to share this with the listeners. And uh, I think he says a lot of cool stuff. So why don't we just give it a listen? I'd like you to imagine, if I may, 
A Dark and Dangerous World It's a world where the darkness within the human soul, the corruption, the sin, the vice, the venality, is not the only dark that people have to watch out for. This dangerous and violent world conceals monsters lurking in the darkest shadows, the forgotten hollows, the neglected alleyways and abandoned homes. Ordinary people in this world of darkness pass by those shadows, shivering at an instinctual half-felt fear, tightening their coats about them, brushing past their entrances a little too quickly. Now imagine a light shining into those hollows and empty places, sending the monsters scurrying back into the deeper recesses of the darkness. A light wielded by frightened, desperate, organized human beings who have seen the dark and what lurks within, and who can never again go back to being blind and ignorant of its existence. Welcome to the long night of White Wolf's game, Hunter the Vigil. A storytelling game of light and shadows. I'm Alex Green, and I'm a contributing author to Hunter the Vigil. I've been invited here to do a guest spot and to review this role-playing game. Hunter the Vigil means a good deal to me, partly due to my contribution towards it, but also because of the particular themes this game explores and I would like to take the time in this article to explain how it can also come to mean a good deal to you. Let's start with the basics. Hunter the Vigil is the sixth core game released for White Wolf's World of Darkness setting. It comes in an attractive metallic green hardback cover and the book contains more than 370 pages of good, solid, meaty, vigilant goodness. The book's fiction, Flesh Trade, is interwoven throughout it and it describes a cell of hunters as they uncover monstrous shenanigans in the game's signature setting, the city of Philadelphia. The opening chapter, Shadows Cast by Firelight, explains the nature of hunters from their origins in the depths of history right through to the present day. It describes what hunters generally know how they get together and share information, cells, compacts and conspiracies, and it then goes on to describe the various threats which hunters face, large and small. Everything from vampires and werewolves and witches, through to ghosts, spirits, demons, the victims of possession, and of course, the hunter's own signature nemesis, slashers, the human and perhaps not-so-human serial killers and murderers cutting a swathe of destruction wherever they go. Hunter the Vigil breaks the mold in one important respect by offering something in a core game that is new to the world of darkness, the concept of tears. Tier 1 is the level of the individual hunter's cell. Just a handful of hunters on their own, only their own resources to fall on and no backup. Tier 2 is the level of the compact, 
regional groups where individual cells which share a common purpose come together and unite under a group identity with a limited scope but with effective backup and lines of communication. Tier 3 is the level of the conspiracy where the various compacts across the world share a common identity and become global organizations typically riddled with secrecy and stifling bureaucracy but allowing access to bizarre tools called endowments which blur the lines between the human and the supernatural. The next chapter breaks down the process of creating a hunter character starting with a human standard template and basically keeping it. Morality stays the same. Hunters don't get a power stat like blood potency or synergy. They don't get a juice stat like vitae or pyros. And most hunters don't even get endowments unless they have status in a conspiracy. So what advantages do these vigilant hunters get? In place of the usual clans or paths, the hunters' various professions are listed, from socialite and journalist to vagrant, from soldier and policeman to criminal, from scientist or doctor to priest. The benefits of each profession include access to two characteristic asset skills which provide certain advantages in the vigil. The section on willpower shows how hunters can do more things with this trait than ordinary people can. They can risk willpower and spend it on endowments and on tactics, which are described later in the book. Merits listed include safe house, which details the places where hunters can lie low for a while, nurse their wounds and regroup, the endowments, favoured weapon, and professional training. The professional training merit is stupidly awesome. Get the right profession and a few dots of professional training and just watch those asset skills come to life. The next chapter looks at the hunter organizations, tier 2 and tier 3 hunter groups, which form the majority of the hunter organizations around the world. The compacts include the hedonists of Ashwood Abbey, the guilt-wracked loyalists of Thule with a dark secret, the YouTube generation's own compact, Network Zero, the Long Night, a group of Christian fundamentalists convinced that the rapture is coming, the Union, protecting the streets for ordinary men and women, and Null Mysteries, a group of scientists and engineers determined to shed the light of reason into the dark world. Conspiracies include the Aegis Kaidoro, the shield and spear, with their ceaseless quest against shapeshifters and witches, and hints of the God Machine cult, as mentioned in the core rulebook for the World of Darkness. Other conspiracies include the Ascending Ones, claiming to be descended from some cults which operated in ancient Egypt, the Chiron Group, a mysterious private organization with a lot of money, the Lucifuge, a group of exactly 666 members led by a mysterious immortal lady in Milan whose parents are supposedly the devil his own self. The Maleus Maleficarum, 
the official Catholic Church's conspiracy, and Task Force Valkyrie, the US government's Men in Black conspiracy, round off this list of organizations. Each of the conspiracies have their own endowments, which range from the subtle benedictions and the Lucifuge's hellish castigation endowment, through to the gross, advanced armory and Thorma technology implanted tissues from supernatural beings literally grafted onto and into Chiron Group Hunters' bodies. Notes on endowment R&D are also listed, should adventurous players or storytellers want to experiment with creating new endowments other than those listed already. Other special rules available to hunters include tactics, which are the techniques that hunter cells drill and practice for, such as identification, moral support, measurement, profiling, corral and deprogramming, and of course the practical experience trait which hunters acquire, which are used to pay for those tactics as a group. An extensive equipment list is provided, listing all manner of tools for the hunt from torture kits to designer clothes and fashions and vehicles of course. There follows the storytelling chapter which goes into how to create and sustain a hunter chronicle from the first sparking of the light, the inciting incident, through to the final snuffing out and the end of the chronicle. A list of monstrous dread powers is provided, along with some sample hunters and some enemies, including demons and cults. Two cults are included, the sexually alluring sodality of Lysentia, operating as a nightclub, and the chilling secret of the Epicurean clubs of the adventure Pâté de Foie Gras. Hunter the Vigil's core rulebook then rounds off with the obligatory two appendices, the first describing the hunter's code, the ways that hunters can attempt to stave off morality loss and degeneration by paying a very specific and highly risky price, and the second describing the major highlights of and the signature characters and groups of the city of Philadelphia, the signature setting. So then, why Hunter the Vigil? Why not run the game with just ordinary human beings? Well, it is possible to see Hunter the Vigil as being a kind of extension of the World of Darkness core rulebook, incorporating all the different things that hunters can do that ordinary human beings cannot. It is possible to see the Vigil as ultimately what all long-term human player characters turn to in a pure World of Darkness campaign. If your tastes run to playing the monsters, there probably is no place in your heart for this book. But as someone pointed out, sometimes the things that hunters can do, from tactics through to using endowments, can border on the supernatural, blurring on the boundaries on where the monsters stop and those monsters that hunt them begin. If you want your game to run like a cross between Torchwood, Supernatural and Quatermass and the Pit, then I recommend Hunter the Vigil because this big green book taken and used with the World of Darkness Blue Core rulebook is really all that you will ever need to run a complete Hunter game. My name is Alex Green and this has been my rapid fire review of Hunter the Vigil. We all put a lot of effort into making it fun for you to play. I do hope you enjoy the game. Let the hunt begin.
So, Chris, uh, yeah, really interesting. Uh, great summary of the book and uh, what Hunter the Vigil means for the Chronicles of Darkness. One of the things that I really liked uh, about Alex's explanation was that, you know, he, he dives into what differs Hunter the Vigil from the Chronicles of Darkness first edition sort of mortals uh, baseline that we use, you know, mm. especially focusing on the tier system uh, and how, you know, that can bring about different styles of gameplay, uh, you know, the compacts and conspiracy, obviously, with their different endowments. And then, of course, the tactics, uh, all really neat stuff. We Yeah, I mean, the I think the important thing about where this book is important, because, you know, he's clearly talking about the first edition and we're still waiting for Hunter the Visual second edition, but Hunter the Visual really built on Chronicles on Chronicles of Darkness first edition and really set the groundwork, which we see again now in the other games, like the 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 tier system about how, you know, kind of like what scale of game are you playing? Um, I think also uh, Hunter the Visual introduced uh, professions as a background. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. And we see that now in like I've been getting things ready for a one shot to carry on my Guy Stalkers International um series of one shots. And I use you know, the profession system is a really good way of of spending some mer- merit points to gain that extra kind of definition to your character to say they're you know, they're an archaeologist or they're a, a mechanic or or so forth. It's just it's inc- you know, you can see there's so much in this in that book that just lays the groundwork for what second edition actually is. Right, right. And a lot of it was kind of a response to um and like kind of like fixes to uh some some issues that were seen in the first edition of Chronicles of Darkness. You know, starting level characters just to have character creation were pretty weak in that, uh, which is why the professions were introduced to kind of give a couple more skill points, a couple more dots. And just to make uh, these these characters a bit more interesting, just out of you know basic character creation. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, tier system has popped up all the time. We used to talk about tier system a lot here on the show, but it's become so rote because pretty much every game line's using it. Um, yeah, a lot of neat stuff. A lot of neat stuff. So I think you know it's interesting that you just mentioned Geist because Geist is about to have its second edition come out. Mm. Um, they're working on it right now. And Hunter the Vigil, despite being an older game, is not going to be updated yet. It's still still off in the, the distance a little bit. So I guess that kind of begs the question of what we expect to see in Hunter the Vigil 2nd uh, Edition. Um, you know, as I mentioned, Professions are now in the Chronicles of Darkness 2nd Edition book. So that no longer needs to be in a uh, Hunter the Vigil core book. So what is going to replace it? Like, What kind of new uh, material can we expect or can we hope for? Um, I don't know about you, Chris, but I would like to see uh, some more specific kind of reworked investigation rules. I think that could be pretty yeah. neat. Yeah, I mean, the core book for Chronicles of Darkness now has investigated, at least it explains uh, investigations. I think it uses mm-hmm. the, the door system that's also used for, um, I don't, it's, it's hard to say because like, I don't, really use it as much i think it's a very good system to fall back on when it's very hard to role play through an investigation you kind of need to represent a long-term investigation but yeah i mean there's a lot there to use with um with i think the doors works because 
it represents how close you are to revealing the full truth of what's going on. So in that respect, it's kind of similar to Trial of Cthulhu, where, you know, really, you know, the thing is, is that you don't want to, you don't want to place hurdles in front of your players in, a, in an investigative game uh, where it's reliant on them getting all the clues through dice rolls, because, you know, you're, you're meant to be playing characters that are, to a certain extent, trained or self-trained in discovering the weird things around them to find out what the supernatural threat is. So right. I always use dice rolls more of not whether you found the clue, but the quality. Yeah, exactly. Like, so so then, you should always have like a basic note or something that they're going to receive. However, if they roll well, then you get some additional details about Like they'll that. know whether it's a, a it's being faked, that's not the person's handwriting at a right. later point, or, um, or things like that. And then it means then the fun for your players is how do they put together that information to uh give them uh the heads up on what they're ta- on what they're chasing down it may mean they might be able to skip certain scenes in your story and cut to the chase of getting to the bad guy because they already have gleaned enough information and their own insight has led them to conclude it's most probably this whereas if they haven't they've got to do more investigation they have to face more challenges and more risks and that might mean they get to the bad guy just as the sacrifice has been done rather than before it's done. So you kind of Mm -hmm. add that element that, again, involving time in a game is hard. So I think time time is sometimes best represented through quality of, you know, the degree of success on things to make, uh, and and that leads them to interact with the setting. And I've had that happen in Chronicles where they've just gone, oh, it's this. And you're just like, shit, they've just gone straight past like two scenes I had planned out. But, you know, that's the reward for your players is that they get there before uh, something goes down. Or they know when it's going to occur so they can better prepare. So the quality of clues can also mean they can they can prepare their tactics, especially if they're hunters. That means they, they, can, they may even have time to go off and train a new tactic. So maybe some of the XP points they've, they've got... They can they can spend more rapidly because they do some like you, you do a montage scene and they they train. Other things we're clearly as you said we we've already got stuff that's in the core book so maybe they'll make room for how to build your slashes. Slashes yeah, aren't just yeah. hunters gone mad. I would really like to see a lot more st- ideas and things maybe inspired by um, the Hannibal TV series. Like Hannibal is my, that is my, <laughs> that is the TV show to go to for Hunter the Vigil. Um, yeah, certainly. Poor old Will Graham is just, you know, such a, a punch bag for, for bad things. But uh, that's a really good show. I think there's some other stuff that I, I don't watch, but there's some good procedural TV. Like, was it Person of Interest maybe? Mr. Robot maybe could have elements that work in there. I don't know what else could go in the book. I mean, maybe cryptid creation, because we've got some nightmare powers that are in the core book for Chronicles of Darkness that could be built upon to build certain kind of antagonists. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing that's going to be new in the book, of course, is the Slasher Chronicles. So yes. what's your feeling on that, Chris? Like, where where do you want that to go? So I pretty much will say it 
will be a chronicle that's going to be trying to get to the to the root of why slashers are a are a, a thing within the world of darkness within the, the that world of darkness hmm. so there's a lot of talk in the hunter core book about what a slasher is and also in the slashers book at the same you know why is this something that happens why do people get driven mad and why as they are committing serial murders and so forth does it if they're not caught what, what are they working towards what does it say about the human psyche the soul uh why are slashers like this why are they different to other supernatural creatures where well, slashers can also slowly develop supernatural abilities you know mike myers you shoot him and yet he still fucking comes back uh it's it could be really interesting uh, you know there's some really good bits in hunter like uh the vasco or project valkyrie um uh the what's the group that the that steals supernatural body parts and use them to graft chiron group yeah they're they're yeah. awesome they are really freaking awesome like there's yeah. so many fun things to do with these guys um i mean again you know now we're into this kind of vampire fifth edition as well like i i'd like to see you know and we've got that world darkness ghost hunters it'd be really cool to see some of this kind of re recolored and 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 see how how it may some of these things could kind of work in a in a version for world of darkness as well i know it's really difficult so world yeah. of darkness we've got the technocracy and usually they're the ones that sort out a lot of the monsters but it's a lot more fun that it's human you know basic humans i say basic humans you've got that weird hunt the what is it what's the what's the hunter's lodge um oh, i was reading all of this recently but you know there's so many twisted hunter groups that ha or, or slasher oh, yeah. collectives i don't know there could i just i just want second edition um, could be anything. I was actually I was thinking of something way different with the uh, Slasher Chronicle. I was actually kind of taking more of the angle that it would be like a low level tier one kind of Hunter Chronicle. And what I thought would be really interesting because I haven't seen this done in many Chronicles ever is to have it focused on a uh, instead of recurring protagonists, which would be your player characters. Uh, kind of you were mentioning Halloween, maybe like Friday the Thirteenth. Have this. Uh, uh, kind of persistent antagonist uh, and have a rotating cast of player characters who are often murdered and kind of go through and explore the slashers in that way. Maybe oh, specifically yeah. how one or two or maybe like a small group of slashers That's... are affecting the local area. That reminds me of something I've always wanted to do for Chronicles of Darkness, but I've never, had, <laughs> never been in one place long enough to run it um, and run all the Chronicles for it. But what you could do then, if if it's a series of string together stories with the you know the, the 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 slasher in question being the one thing that ties them together, it means then that for the final story of all of it, you could pick the survivors from all of the previous uh, episodes. Oh yes, and they all yes. finally come together, and it's like they've all got a piece of the puzzle. So that would be fun. Yeah, that. That would be a fun chronicle. Nice. Right. Um, I think that covers everything. Uh, what else do we need to say as we close the show? Or have we got any last things that you've thoughts on Hunter the Vigil? No, I think that's just about it. So let's move on over to the uh, closing segment here. I think the most important thing to repeat is, of course, that we do have our Jackalope uh, Darker Days contest here. 
uh, which is for a free ticket to their Sabat live action game. It's worth uh, $189 to be claimed online free of charge by their uh, ticket provider. Uh, does not cover travel, food, or lodging. Uh, it is not redeemable or refundable, but it can be transferred to another person at will. And you got to be 18 years old uh, or older to be admitted. So, yeah, and to uh, to get that, to enter the contest, uh, just check out the uh, World of Darkness Berlin YouTube trailer and uh, try to see where Chris and I are in that trailer. Just give us the timestamp, submit it to darkerdaysradio at gmail.com or one of our other ways to get uh, in contact with us, and uh, we'll enter you into the list. Yeah, we are actually, are. we are in that video as well. Trust me, we are in there. Um, so we're not, there isn't a... We're not mucking with we mucking around with you, <laughs> um, as as infuriating it could be. Um, yeah, uh, obviously for other content, uh, there's Network Zero. We recently did a overview, a primer to uh, Promethean the Created. We will do a primer on Network Zero uh, next of Mage the Awakening because there's no point in doing Hunter until the second edition is out. So. Um, uh, and we've only just done it now on this show, so we'll uh, <laughs> we'll do Hunter Second Edition when it's out, and we'll have some more Kingdom Death content when me and James work out which monster we want to talk about. Uh, I think I need to fight Spidicules before we talk about Spidicules. If you want to get in contact with us, there is our Twitter, of course, which is at Darker Days Radio. It is really busy recently. Um, yeah. I checked my phone. There's a hundred new notifications. What's going on? Yeah, uh, I think we will use it a lot more. It's clear we've maybe have reached the level of um, interaction that we get a lot more going on there. Um, you know, you'll maybe find retweets of other interesting podcasts out there. For example, there is now a new Mage podcast called Mage the Podcast, uh, and uh, legendary founder of Dark Days Radio, uh, Mark Hope is going to be on the next episode of that so yeah. uh, we'll include a link to that one you can follow us on facebook uh there's lots of stuff up there if it's not vampire related or world of darkness related or chronicles of darkness related it might well be um it might well be toy soldier related there are some cool kickstarters going on for things either that i want to buy or i have bought um what else is there mike well, if you need to get in contact with us directly, you can send us an email over at darkerdaysradio at gmail.com. Uh, we also do have our Google Plus uh, group, Darker Days Radio, over there, uh, which uh, we're wondering if we're going to keep open. Uh, let us know if you want us to keep that open. We haven't been using it too much lately. So just uh, if you want to show that there's interest for it, just make a couple posts there, ask some questions, and uh, yeah, we'll definitely uh, jump in and give our insight. And, of course, uh, to reiterate, there are two games running that I will be doing at UK Games Expo. There is the Chronicles of Darkness game, uh, The Hunger From Within, which I've run on this show before. So if you want to play in a British folk horror-inspired tale of terror based in my hometown, uh, please come play it. It'll be great. And hopefully I will be running a version of Vampire 5th Edition uh, uh, at UK Games Expo. Uh, as well as, you know, I will track down uh, the guys at Modifius Mid and obviously the, the White Wolf crew and also other Onyx Path writers who happen to be around there and uh, other interesting game stuff going on at uh, UK Games Expo. And I think that's it. Yeah, definitely exciting stuff. Chris, thank you for another great episode. Thank you. 
And listeners, have a good night. This has been an episode of Darker Days Radio. Special thanks to Occam's Laser for the intro, outro, and new bumper music from their hit album, Nine Circles. Check out the rest of their work at occamslaser.bandcamp.com.